Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, where we will bring you some of the most interesting interviews and features from the world of tech. Visit irishtechnews.ie and check out our podcast section to explore all of our previous episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast using whatever your favorite app or service is by visiting anchor.fm forward slash irish dash tech dash news. Hi, welcome to today's our technical podcast. I'm talking Professor Steve Whittacombe, Director of Science and Deputy Chief Executive of Plymouth Marine Laboratory and the Voyage to Back to Blue. How, how are you doing, Professor Whitcomb? I'm doing great. How are you? Great, thanks. Now, before we start, tell us about the background so we have an idea who you are. Okay, so as you said, I'm, a, I'm the Director of Science at Plymouth Marine Laboratory. Plymouth Marine Laboratory is an independent uh, marine research organisation. Uh, we, we explore all facets of uh, the, the ocean, from the marine biodiversity to the biogeochemical cycles. We use satellite Earth observations to, to observe the ocean. We also use complex ecosystem models, and also we, we have a social science element as well to understand humans as part of the ocean. Yeah, and I guess uh, with a, a best junior job over the past so many years, technology has improved so much that you're able to do it in a way that doesn't, doesn't damage the oceans. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen huge uh, advancements over the over the years, and, it, and particularly over the last few years. You know, our, our ability now to go and interact with the ocean in a, in a much less invasive way has come on in leaps and bounds. So we're developing a number of ways of doing that. You know, from not just being in the ocean, on the ocean to take samples, but also using things like satellites to image the ocean from far away and gather data using the colour of the oceans to then understand the processes that are going on in it. Yeah, I can imagine that years ago you would have sent someone down there to look at these things in a mini submarine, whatever, and now you haven't got to do that anymore, which means you're interacting with the environment down there in a better way, cleaner way. Yeah, that's exactly it. The use of autonomous ships as well and, and ROVs and autonomous underwater platforms. But also the key thing about technology as well, it's not just about being able to go to places um, we, that we never used to be able to go to or being there at times when we were not able to be there. Yeah. But it's also about seeing things we were never able to see before because they were too small or too rare or we just didn't know that they were they were there so using things technology to explore really microscopic organisms and processes and also you know down to actually measuring the dna uh, that's that's floating around in the ocean these technologies are really advancing the knowledge that we gain yeah because I can imagine if, if a human was going down there and, and looking at stuff, the technology you would have used 20 or so years ago isn't what it is now, so you've now got a computer with you that can take images and, and tell you within minutes or seconds what they're seeing. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think that's a key point as well that you, you, um, you hit upon there, the, the concept of sort of having information much more quickly. So as an example, we, we're, we're um, about to deploy a new piece of equipment, which is in effect a high power microscope that looks at plankton yeah. actually from the sea and will send us the images back. Now that that's really exciting in its own, in its own right, but all, 
what that means is we get lots and lots and lots of pictures of plankton and and for a human being to sit in front of that and understand what it all means is just impossible so we're using artificial intelligence and machine learning to be able to analyze those pictures really quickly and pull out the the, the important pieces of information almost in real time so that we're not sat there for for, for days months years yeah. even trying to interpret the pictures and i guess that to me is like a ocean-based version of a telescope where you're seeing things a lot clearly and and right now space has been explored extensively but not enough has been done to explore the the, the oceans and by doing technology like this you're doing what nasa would do in space absolutely i mean there's a lot of similarities between the technologies that are used to peer out there into the universe and the technologies we're using to kind of peer into our own oceans but i would say you know there is so much yet to discover about the oceans you know this 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 um this whole new universe that's right here on our own planet and also i guess for example with global warming by using technology you can then sense if plankton is changing color changing size something else you didn't know we've got problems ahead yeah, I mean, we've got um, uh, at the Plymouth Marine Laboratory, we run uh, the Western Channel Observatory. And this is a, an integrated marine observatory looking at all facets of the marine ecosystem from microbes to plankton to fish to the biogeochemical processes. And we've been sampling there every week for the last 30 years. So we're seeing those changes associated with climate change all the time. And what technology is able us to do is collect information more quickly, understand it more quickly, but also be there when the boat's not there. Yeah. So, for example, if we know that storms are getting more intense because of global warming, but it's really difficult to be out there sampling when a storm comes through, both in terms of doing the work, but also it's just not safe. But with technology and autonomy, we can have eyes and ears in the ocean at the most, the times when the most interesting things are happening. Yeah, because I I know that, for example, we had a tsunami 20 or so years ago and the other things coming on. You're able to go and see what the the damage is long-term wise, short-term wise, and how we can improve on that. Yeah, and... I think also that when previously things have happened in the ocean, it's been a case of we've realised they've happened and then we've gone to try and work out why they happened after the fact. Yeah. And really you're then like a detective trying to solve, the, find the clues and solve the mystery of why something happened and, and, and what the effects were. But actually t- technology and autonomy is going to allow us to be there in the room when that that, when that crime occurs, yeah. so that we're then able to, you know, we use the CCTV footage to watch watch the perpetrator commit that crime. So, it, so we get much deeper understanding of of, of the immediate response and, and consequences of of, of um, events in the ocean by having technology there all the time. Well, I'm thinking, for example, like we had recently had earthquakes in Turkey, Syria, and I guarantee the earthquakes also under the ocean that we don't really hear about, but I guarantee your technology will be able to, to see them and see how they're, when they actually happen and see the before and after effects and how we can stop these happening again. Well, in terms of um, earthquakes, you know, there is, there is a, a global ocean system for yeah. listening 
for earthquakes. So we are, you know, technology is allowing humans to listen for, to the seismic signatures of of, of, um, of earthquakes as and when they happen, and and we understand uh, and we sort of know the importance of those kind of um, events, not just for human safety yeah. uh, in terms of causing tsunamis, uh, but also the fact that they uh, redistribute large amounts of sediment under the water and have a big impact on deep sea ecosystems. Yeah, because I'm thinking, for example, you mentioned the plankton, I guarantee you, that happened in the sea. The plankton, they would move somewhere else and it wouldn't be good for them. Maybe they wouldn't be able to, to survive. Well, the key thing for plankton at the moment is is primarily the ocean warming and the yeah. other changes to the... To the um, to the environment. So things like ocean acidification, uh, which is the carbon dioxide in our atmosphere dissolving into the surface ocean and actually changing the chemistry of, of our ocean to such an extent that it's going to become really difficult for some organisms to, to carry on living in, yeah. in, a, in a sea that's getting much warmer and, and more acid. Yeah, because if, if you compare it to the ocean now to what it was two or three hundred years ago, it's totally different because as we, we become into the machine age and more mechanised, we've caused a lot of damage. We have, we have caused a huge amount of um, damage to, uh, to the ocean. And in fact, that was the really big uh, topic we were discussing at the World Ocean Summit this week. Uh, we were one, a huge conversation around what does a sustainable blue economy look like? How can humans be, um, be a part of the marine ecosystem in a way that is fully sustainable so that we can gain value from the ocean, but also we're not damaging the very uh, organisms or processes that we, we're gaining that value from? I can imagine if Jack Cousteau was alive today, he would love the technology you're using because he was a pioneer in, in, ocean, in discovering the oceans. Oh, absolutely. And, and pioneers such as Jacques Cousteau sort of exist today. And in fact, I would imagine that many researchers like, like myself, you know, the, um, the feeling of discovery, the spirit of adventure yeah. that, that we can get from, from researching the, the, the ocean and, and, and the coastal seas is, is still as great as ever. Yeah, because imagine years ago, the guys who were discovering the, the Marina's Trench would, would have felt we're like, we're like the first guys going to space. And now what you do when you're like the first guy who's not going to the moon because you've gone a lot further than they have. Well, absolutely, yeah. And, and, and even, even in places where you don't expect it, um, you think you can be, you can be um, sampling in, a, in, a, in somewhere maybe in Southeast Asia, in a shallow yeah. lagoon, and you could be looking for different types of animals that live in the mud. And I guarantee you will still be finding... Um, Species of creatures that have not been described by science. Yeah. There are hundreds of thousands of marine organisms out there still yet to be described. Yeah. And hopefully those creatures, if they are found, they won't suddenly find out that they've got a short lifespan because the environment around them has been changed for, uh, for the worst. Yeah, I mean, that's the real worry is that, you know, we're, we're discovering species now probably at a slower rate to which we're losing them, yeah. which is a really sad way. But technology is helping us discover those species as well. So pro, um, um, techniques like environmental DNA, yeah. using D DNA uh, sequencing to be able to look for, explore and find new animals, new species, and also understand how the different species are related to each other. So... 
you know, 100 years ago when we would rely on looking at organisms under a microscope and looking at how their morphological features were related to other, other similar species, it was the way in which you used to classify the animals. We can now use powerful genetic techniques to understand how all these different species are actually related to each other. I guess it's back years ago when you had Carl Linnaeus doing, saying where a certain plants came from. You're now able to do that with things in the, in the sea, which is great. So you can then build a, an eco ecosystem and know where it came from. Yeah, and and I think understanding the ecosystem, I think, is key. Uh, the idea being it, conservation. You know, decades ago, used to maybe pick on one or two charismatic species that we thought, well, if we, these are the really important things to, um, to preserve and to, and to look after. But I think what's clear is that, particularly with the ocean, the interconnectedness of everything that's there yeah. um, is so important. So we can't just protect one thing or one or two things because everything depends on everything else. And, and having a healthy, full biodiverse ecosystem is so important and also it's not just about conserving something in one place because we know that um, populations are connected to each other as an example um, there was a, a, an effort to protect coral in a particular part of the Red Sea and despite that coral being 100% protected it was still dying off and and, and it it wasn't being replaced. And then it was realized, actually using satellite imagery and, and um, hydrodynamic uh, hydro modeling, that the reason it was dying off was because the young coral, uh, the, so the new juvenile corals that were needed to, to replace that coral reef were coming from somewhere else completely that wasn't protected. So it's about making sure you know how all these things are connected so you can protect all the various bits of the, of the puzzle. I guess it was like Darwinism found to the fittest, but you got to make sure that the that the old things that were there will be there in thirty years' time. Yeah, and actually, there there were lots of other processes at, at play as well that actually stop because whilst Darwinism and the survival of the fittest is you know it is a process that's going on. In a way, it 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 doesn't do much to um, to support diversity on a, yeah. on a very small scale in the fact that what you sometimes need are processes in place that hold back some of the really good competitors to allow some of the others to co coexist. Yeah. Uh, and, and a little bit of natural disturbance created by the ecosystem itself um, is very important for kind of creating niches and, and opportunities for lots of species to coexist. Yeah, because if you have the, if you have the scenario where basically... Uh, Older things are dying now, and the coral you're getting now isn't isn't the coral that you used to. That's going to change the environment totally, and it's going to make things yeah. for the worse. Yeah, and one of the most important things that we can do to protect the ocean and ultimately us from climate change is to ensure that we keep resilience yeah. in the system. And by resilience, I mean having a high level of biodiversity because if you imagine that if we go and interfere with a coral reef and, and our activities kill off half the species of coral now we might be killing off 
half of the, those those yeah. species which actually were most resilient to climate change. So we've lost that genetic diversity. We've lost that resilience. So that when a heat wave comes along or an ocean acidification event comes along, all the species that might have been able to resist that and persist during those conditions might already be gone. Yeah. So we so the damage from those events is so much greater because we haven't given the the ecosystem as much resilience to 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 cope. To me, it's like when Cortez years ago went to Mexico and he brought along the, the cold, common cold. People died because they weren't uh, used to that. And the same way you're saying in the oceans, they aren't used to what, what's happening, so they're going to die off, which is, which to me, something we should look at trying to make sure it doesn't happen. Yeah, and and ecosystems are always in a flux of change, yeah. you know, in a state of change. You know, and adaptation is a really important driver in. You know, in marine systems and local adaptation in particular. So, you know, I've looked at different populations of, of marine animals where if I take them from one place and, uh, and, um, and expose them to a certain set of conditions, they will, will respond very differently to the same species, but from a different population from somewhere else. And that's yeah. to do with how they've grown up and what they've got used to and how they've adapted locally. The key thing about climate change, though, is it's going way too fast. Yeah. Adaptation just cannot keep up. So when, when adaptation cannot keep up, in essence, the only other option is extinction. Yeah. And, and whenever you hear the word extinction, that to me uh, says doom and gloom and bad news and we don't want that. Yeah, there's, there's, very, there's very few silver linings to extinction. Yeah. And also make sure work work tougher because... If you were for, for years studying certain plankton and certain creatures that were living in these environments and suddenly they're gone, you're not sure what, what you can, how you can, how the environment they're, they're in is, is going to survive or how it would look like. And also, you don't know what's going to come and take their place because yeah. I mean, what we are seeing is that, um, particularly in the plankton, you know, there are some particular species of plankton that we call harmful algal blooms, uh, and these are species that might produce a certain toxin, which is either poisonous to other uh, other marine organisms, or even can be can be harmful to us. So think about um, the shellfish uh, ingesting some of these things and making people unwell once they consume them. Yeah. Uh, uh, so these harmful algal blooms uh, are from a family of phytoplankton called dinoflagellates, uh, largely, uh, and they actually like some of the, the warmer, uh, more acidic conditions that we're moving towards. So we could be in a position where we're losing plankton, which are incredibly valuable to us because they provide really nutritious food to, to, to other marine organisms, particularly fish and shellfish, and actually then favouring those organisms, those plankton that cause us harm. So climate change is not just about, um, it's not just about losing everything, but it might actually favour some of those species which um, perhaps are not the ones we really want in our ecosystem in large numbers. Yeah, so I guess you, you, if they're in their large numbers, they're going to change the dynamic of the environment that they're in for the worse. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, and sort of bringing the conversation on those back to technology, this is where we are using things like this uh, autonomous plankton imager to be able to get early warning systems yeah. for for these plankton, but also using satellite imagery because you can see some of these uh, blooms from space. Yeah. So by combining in in-water observations with satellite images and predictive models, 
we we provide uh, early warning systems for for example aquaculture uh, the aquaculture industry so that they know when those habs are coming so they can do something about it either remove their um, their stock from the water so harvest early or they can um, they can realize well actually we just need to not sell the shellfish for a few weeks because they're going to be contaminated or if for example you've got a salmon fishing farm you can tell people this is not a time right now that you should be harvesting because it might cause more damage wait a few more weeks yeah, absolutely. And that's where technology is really uh, playing a strong role in, in kind of helping us understand the, the ecosystems, but for a, for a purpose. I mean, the work we do at Plymouth Marine Laboratory is very much about generating knowledge and understanding of the ocean, but we want to be able to use that knowledge to, to, to support um, outcomes uh, and impact. So it's not enough for us to publish a scientific paper. We want to be able to provide information that allows people to change their actions or to operate in a in a better more effective way and, and support um, strong and good and better decisions and i guess by showing images and video clips of what you what you're seeing people are more inclined to go oh my god this is happening whereas if we see a paper they're thinking oh there's another buff and they're saying okay. we don't believe we have where's the proof there yeah, absolutely, and it's re- and I think it's really important for for scientists and uh, to 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 make the knowledge we have uh, available and yeah. understandable and digestible. Now, I'm I'm not saying that we you know we have an ambition to turn everybody into a a marine biology expert, but I think it's really important that everyone feels that they have enough information and enough knowledge about the subject to have a you know an informed conversation and be part of the decision-making process yeah and also i guess it's it's to make them know that how they how they can change their habits to uh, impact our life in a better way Oh, absolutely. We're, we're all an integrated part of the ocean system. People think, even if you live hundreds, hundreds of thousands of miles away from the ocean, the, act, the activities that you, you do, the actions you take, will ultimately impact on the ocean. Be that if you're generating carbon dioxide that goes into the atmosphere that ends up in the sea causing ocean acidification, or the way in which you uh, dispose of or handle plastic, you know, the use of plastics. You know, every decision we make you know, has implications for for the ocean so as well as humans being part of the problems you know it, it's it's an onus on us also to, to be part of the solution there are things we can do no matter how small it might feel it all counts and it all matters well to me one big thing is if you're in the supermarket and you're buying fish products to make sure the products that you're buying they haven't been been, been brought to you by by a company who's harmed the environment in a negative way yeah, and that that is the. I mean, the power the power of the consumer is is immense, you know, yeah. and and the idea being that you can you can actually affect change by the way by the decisions you make when you're in the supermarket, you know, eventually big companies will realise that they provide in essence what we you know what we ask for what we buy, so everyone should feel empowered to be able to make decisions that they feel. Um, lead to the actions that they want and and the actions I would like to see is is a safe, diverse productive marine system, ocean system which has humans as part of that ecosystem not not on the outside just taking things away we are part of that ocean ecosystem Yeah, like we're kind of the guardians and making sure it's going to be a safe place for the next generation 
Yeah, but I think we're not we're not only the guardians. You know, we are we are the dependents yeah. on that as well. Because if if the ocean system collapses, you know, the species that's probably going to suffer the most is is, is us. Yeah. Because I guess this kind of sounds like one of those disaster movies, but it's actually reality. We got to make sure that that we don't end up uh, end up like a Hollywood movie. Yeah, yes, yeah. Um, but I, I wouldn't want people to feel that the, 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 um, the situation is so dire yeah. that there's nothing anyone can do and we throw our hands up and say, well, it's all, it, it, it's, it's all inevitable and, and everything's, everything's heading towards disaster. You know, we, we can make a difference, you know, we can, but we need, we need to consciously take steps to do that. So, uh, and, and I would also encourage people that, their actions do matter. Yeah, you know, it may seem it may seem the, the smallest thing in the world to pick up a piece of plastic and put it in a recycling bin, or it may seem a small activity to turn down the heating a couple of degrees, or to decide to walk down to the shop rather than take the car. Yeah, but multiplied up across the globe, those things really, really matter. And also, it's about then feeling that you know you're being part of the solution. Yeah, and everyone's, everyone's got the part to play, and it's going to be either large or small part, but everyone does their bit, it's going to help us in the long term. Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. Because yeah. we've, we've seen now and again, every so often we get a report that the uh, temperature has gone up about a couple of degrees a year, and, and I'm thinking, what can we do to stop this? And if you have education, and let people know, every little bit helps. So no matter what you do, you're going to help us stop this. Yeah, and it, and also everyone can, in essence, show leadership as yeah. well from a personal perspective. You know, every one of us have people around us who look to us to to see what we do. Yeah, you know, if you're, you know, if you're, you know, if you have children or you know, in a, in a group of friends, you you can be a climate leader. You can be a, an ocean advocate, an ocean ambassador yeah. by by the activities you undertake. You know, every one of us has influence over friends, relatives, uh, people we, we talk to in the street, in the pub. Um, if, we, if we sell a positive message about the ocean and, and, and we offer um, not, just, uh, not just advice on how to do things, but we're seen to do that ourselves, then we can, we can again be a really positive force for change. And if you can show them that this is what you should do, and by doing this you will get X, Y and Z, not A, B and C, and this advise them this this is this is the future yeah yeah and in a in a organization such as Plymouth Marine Laboratory where I work that's primarily our role is to provide uh, advice on what will happen if certain decisions are made I mean we we are not decision makers we are not advocates you know we we are not campaigners but what we are is we are providers of robust, reliable evidence so that those people who are responsible for making decisions, all the way from you know, the public to local councils to national governments to international treaties, they, they realise you are making a decision based on the best available evidence. And then it's that kind of over to you guys, make the decision that you think is right yeah. based on based on knowledge and not just on on speculation. Yeah, because if, if you're based on speculation, that doesn't go with what knowledge. The proof is there. You can see what it can do and what it will do. And you get the ability to say, look, if we don't do this in the next five years, 
we're going to increase the global warming by two degrees. But if you do this right now, what we're suggesting, you can either stop it or make it good in a couple of degrees. Yeah, and 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 that information and knowledge, you know, has been has been collated around climate change for many years now. The IPCC yeah. reports have made it very very clear. You know, the evidence is there. So the scientists, I feel, kind of are doing their job. It now comes down to decision makers to decide what kind of future we want. I think I think the different futures have been laid out very clearly in front of us. Yeah. It now comes down to a choice of where do we really want to go. I think the times of, of, of closing our eyes and, and, and not believing that the, the, even the worst scenarios could ever come true have gone. Yeah. You know, all the scenarios described by the scientists around the IPCC reports, you know, there there is a strong likelihood that if certain decisions are made, we will end up in the worst case scenario. Yeah, and the idea is if you can tell them, if you follow the advice that we're giving you, you can stop this happening or, or getting worse than it is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the 1.5 degree uh, target set at the Paris Convention yeah. several years ago, that's, that's not a safe level. That's not, if we stay below 1.5, everything will be fantastic. Basically, that was a decision taken by politicians that that was a target to aim for because it was less bad than going to 1.6 or 1.7. Yeah. But it was a little bit worse than going to 1.4. Make no mistake, at 1.5, there will be significant changes to, to the world's climate and impacts on ecosystems, yeah. both in the ocean and on land. But the target was chosen because it was important to aim for something. Now, if we go beyond that target, in essence, everything gets progressively worse. Yeah. But if we, if we stop before the target, every point one of a degree before that target is a little bit better. Yeah. I guess we, we, pick, we show a target that could be achievable. And nobody could say we can't do this. If, we, if we'd gone for a target that was harder to achieve, it, it wouldn't make sense. So this way, at least you can say, well, it's possible we can achieve this and maybe go even lower. I mean, it is an, the target is achievable. Yeah. It's challenging. Let's make no mistake, yeah. it is challenging and will require significant uh, changes in, in human behaviour and, and economic behaviour. But it is doable. Um, it, so it's not a question, or a question of whether we can't get there, but whether we won't get there. Yeah. It's like when years ago when, we, when man were going into space, they decided we're going to go to the moon first and not Mars because the moon is achievable. And from that, what we've gained from that, how about go to Mars? And what we're saying is the exact same thing now. If we achieve this, this level, what we're trying to achieve and do that, then we can do more and lessen it as well. Yeah. I mean, and then the key, the key then question is, can we find ways... So once we've kind of slowed and stopped the progress, can we find ways to then start to put it in reverse and come back yeah. from that? Where can we find ways to restore the, the world and the ocean back to a state that was how we wanted it previously? Yeah. Because just stopping at a level of damage is, it, you know, is, is a huge achievement, but really what we then want to do is actually back off from that precipice and come back to a state where 
our oceans and our, our planet are, much, you know, are in a much better condition and we have a much healthier relationship with the ocean. I guess like rewinding a video of what damage has been done and rewinding it back to a state where it was livable and not as bad as it is now. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 we on, try to undo the worst effects. And there are, you know, and, and nature itself will will help us in that in that uh, restoration yeah. process. You know, the 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 routes to uh, removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and from the ocean, you know, exist yeah. within the planet itself as well. So we just need to give the planet the space, the time, the protection to start doing that for us as well. So um, habitats, which are really important for both for climate change and for biodiversity protection, are things we call blue carbon habitats, yeah. such as seagrasses and mangroves and um, salt marshes. And over the years, we've, we've, we've caused huge damage to those, um, those ecosystems. We need to protect those and restore them and have more of those because they are the, the habitats that are going to be helping us in this fight against uh, rising carbon dioxide levels and also protecting biodiversity for us. And before we finish off the podcast, is there any tip you can give, people can do, to start reversing this? Um, well, as I said, it's, it, it's a matter of, Often it's a lot of small things added up. So, be, but I just encourage people to be aware of what their what their influence and impact might be yeah. on the on the marine ecosystems, on the oceans themselves. You know, so it's things that, you know none of us like to see rubbish in the in the ocean. So let's let's be part of the solution. Let's make sure we don't discard rubbish. Let's let's keep it. To, um, Try to minimise energy use. You know, think about how to become um, become more carbon neutral. Yeah. Think about ways in which we live our life that actually reduce the amount of carbon we produce individually. Um, think about you know the ways in which we can um, sort of minimise just our general impacts on ecosystems all around us, be that terrestrial or marine. Yeah. And I think the final one would be. To be an advocate, to be a supporter of the of the ocean, you know, be um, uh, gather information on it, learn from it, and 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 don't be shy in passing that information to others, so that we can all be uh, a bit more knowledgeable about yeah. the importance of the ocean and the beauty of the ocean and, and what it does for us. And that note, so thanks so much for a great conversation, Professor Whitcomb, and good luck in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the latest Irish Tech News podcast. Check back every day for the latest episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish underscore tech news. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Irish Tech News. On LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Irish dash tech dash news. On Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Irish Tech News dot IE. And on TikTok, tiktok.com forward slash at Irish Tech News.